songs in there? I don't know. So, I mean, just think about what we're really paying for. I've been a Christian since I've been, what, age 12, something like that? And, and after all these years, there's still hymns I don't, yeah.
like if you're broadcasting the Facebook, I think that's a good idea. Okay. Yeah, if we were like going to set up our own thing, I'd be like, no, we don't want to do that. Cause we're it sounds like a good idea, but you and I are not going to have the time to do it. You know that. And what happens when eventually we're not around anymore? Yeah, happens exactly. So that, that might work. even worse because like <laughs> you will figure that out I will figure that out but that'll be the end of it yeah I know so um, okay. I we, think we, we almost might want to stick with a single guy just because they do all that that is true you know actually we, as cool an idea as we probably can the part that actually streams out you can put multiple streams that go out the same way. We probably could find a plugin or something that goes to Facebook. Facebook. You can start broadcasting on Facebook and eliminate the need for people to have. For everybody in the world, it's separate. It's me too. I have one, but it's it's a figurehead only. Well, I've been finding marketplace to be worth. Absolutely, Marcy and I guess we're totally She just sold.
it's interesting. Huh? If you if you ever want another distraction, I'll sell it right away. Good morning. Good to see you all here on this beautiful Sunday morning. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Matthew eleven twenty-five. Today will be our communion Sunday. We'll be uh, breaking for a, a few minutes uh, after service, and then when you hear the music regather uh, for our communion service, there'll be no dinner and no evening service uh, today. Remember the baby bottle drive uh, as it continues uh, for its um, uh, take the baby bottle home, fill it with change, and return it on Father's Day. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. See Andrea's number there. Financial note, mystery on a train was postponed, so we'll have to reschedule that. The SGBA annual conference coming in June, which is this month. Could it possibly be June already? June the 21st through 22nd, so that's coming in a hurry. Uh, flyers uh, are on the foyer table. 
Um, so that'd be directly behind me now. All right, I have one more announcement since it's not in your bulletin. There'll be a meeting with the Sheriff's Department. That'll be Thursday. Is that a conflict? So it's the day before. Okay. All right, I had to think through that. Sorry. Meeting with the Sheriff's Department Thursday, the 20th of June at 6 p.m. That's here at the church, and the topic of that meeting is building security. Uh, all CPL uh, carriers will be encouraged to attend, but it's open for all. Um, see Phil uh, for further details on that. So Phil's the contact person for that. I think he'll want to count, probably. So uh, if you're planning to attend, see Phil, or we'll make a sign-up sheet or whatever. So, all right. Anything else I've missed today? Scripture for meditation this morning is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, read verses 20 through 30.
Let's stand and open our service with prayer. Tom, would you open for us today? Thanks. Amen. And I understand congratulations are in order for the Raws today. How many? <laughs> 56 years. Congratulations. If you would take your Trinity hymnal, which is the red one, and turn to page 324, please. 324 in the Trinity hymnal.
anybody have a song, congregational hymn, a choice? Yes. Uh, 504. In the brown? In the brown. Okay. And why did you pick this one? Uh, I have fond memories of it uh, from early on in conversion. And uh, I love the words you speak of. He touched me. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brett speaks about that quite often about the first cause. <coughs> what was the first cause? Who was the first cause? We love God because He first loved us. Absolutely. And uh, it's just meaningful. Okay. All right. I- reading is 1 Peter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Let's stand together. First Peter 2, 1 through 8 page 1888 in the Bible. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, 
and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also for what they were destined for. But, okay. Bless Amen. the word. <laughs> Amen. Please remain standing and turn to page 76 in your brown hymnal. 76 in the brown. Thank you. 
<clears throat> Our scripture text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2. Last Lord's Day, we studied the house that God builds, a reference to his spiritual dwelling among the people of God. We learned that all houses have foundations, and the foundation is the most important point for the most important component, excuse me, which makes up a house. Why is that? Because that satisfies or dictates what the superstructure can be. All houses have but one foundation. In a spiritual house, Christ is the alone foundation. All religions who ignore Christ as central and essential are false. They're, they're built on other things, but they're not built on Christ. They might even say Christ in some of their statements, but we have to examine that to see if the Christ they're talking about is the one that's found in the scripture, or if it's a Christ of their own making. We learn that the foundation determines the superstructure. So with Christ as the foundation stone, we may not simply slap on him anything we would like to do in constructing a spiritual house. No, the superstructure has to measure up to the character the integrity and the will of Christ, and we're going to find that only in the biblical histories. What about the superstructure? Well, we learned that the superstructure is comprised of living stones, an interesting phrase used by Peter, living stones that are fastened to and receiving their life from the life-giving stone, who is Jesus. Life for now, yes, but also for eternity. Everlasting life, ongoing life that sustains us day in and day out. Now we all come in one by one, but once we're in the house, we sustain and support each other in the faith. It's a living building, so to speak. We listed a couple consequences for refusing to build one's spiritual life on Christ, the relationship to Christ then is changed from foundation stone to capstone. What's meant by that is that God's house is built with people passed by. The capstone has been arranged. They're standing on the outside looking in. And secondly, the relationship is changed from foundation stone to stumbling stone. People fall in their unbelief. They trip over Jesus because they don't understand who and what he is, and that he is the foundation stone upon which all faith is to be fastened. Now today we want to look at the very serious sin of rejecting Christ. So I'm picking up on the last thought there. The serious sin of rejecting Christ and disobeying the gospel message. And as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Father, we can sin against your Son, and in so doing we sin against you. You're one in thought, in salvation, in grace. 
in enablement, and also in judgment. So help us understand the great terror that there is if we reject Christ. There is only one Savior, despite all the religions of the world, and there are hundreds of religions in the world. But most of them, indeed, all of them except Christianity, true Christianity, have bypassed Jesus, or they have reinvented him and made him out to be something that he is not. So I pray that you will help us to see how important it is to be fastened to the true rock, the true Lord Jesus Christ, and what disobedience brings upon our watching world. Maybe our friends, maybe our relatives, they're caught up in some kind of religious exercise that they're involved in. They think it'll bring them to salvation. But if it isn't Christ, if it's fastened on Christ, the biblical Christ, uh, then it's just doomsday that awaits them, and that grieves our heart. Bless our people this morning with the ability to hear and to apply as you touch my lips with the ability, I pray, to relate the gospel in Christ's name. Amen. We want to talk today about disobedience doomsday. People don't like to talk about doomsday, but it's coming, (laughs) If you look in our text, we're at 1 Peter, chapter 2. There's a contrast that is given with regard to Christ in verse 7. Now to you who believe this stone, and it's talking about Jesus as the stone, the foundation stone. To you who believe this stone is precious, but. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone of stumbling that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now immediately, just with that one verse, we understand there's two directions people can go with regard to Jesus Christ. The stone is either precious... Or he's a stumble stone that trips people up, hurts them, falls on them, crushes them. Peter has told us that God himself has laid the foundation to the spiritual house he's building. He identifies him as a living stone, verse 4, a chosen stone, also verse 4, a precious stone, also verse 4. Look at all those things he says about the stone. Wow, a living stone, a chosen stone, a precious stone. And also a foundation on which living stones, believers, are being built into, verse 5, a spiritual house. So God is doing this work. Without God, this work would never get off the ground. The heart of sinful man is not inclined 
to the character traits God requires of the building blocks set on his son as the foundation. Verse 5, a holy priesthood, that's what God requires, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. The world at large is not interested in holiness. (laughs) Just think about that. That's why they see no beauty in Christ. This is why Jesus did not sit well with the populace of his day. He was, can I say it this way? He was too perfect. Too perfect. And no one wants to live with a saint. Right? People want a God who is much like themselves, a God who is corrupt, or at least can be corrupted. They want a God whose moral standard is as compromised as their own. And Jesus just does not fit the bill. Jesus stands as a direct opposite. God calls people to be conformed to his son and not the reverse. the The Bible affirms that believers were in no way predisposed to viewing Jesus as precious. Verse 7. Now, <laughs> our disposition towards Jesus was just as hostile, just as sinful and corrupt as any other person on the street. Let me read it for you from Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 3. All of us, he's talking about believers, all of us believers who lived among them, the unbelievers, at one time, we gratified the cravings of our sinful nature following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Ephesians 2 verse 3. See, no different. Captive Daniel under the reign of Darius the Persian king that put him in a dungeon prayed this prayer. Listen to Daniel's prayer. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings and our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. Daniel 9, verses 5 and following. What a prayer. Wow. Paul asked these searching questions of the Roman hearers of the gospel. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better 
Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3, verse 9 and 10. Now this is not to say that Israel, as God's elect nation, did not receive special incentives to believe. They did. Moses, in his closing statements to Israel before Joshua assumed the leadership, said these words, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near to us when we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Deuteronomy 4, verse 5 and following. Yet, sadly, I have to say this morning that Israel did forget. They did. They reverted back to their pagan roots. And that demonstrates to us that privilege does not guarantee faith. Privilege, however, does intensify judgment. Jesus put it this way, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Luke 12, verse 48. I mean, what might be said of us who live in America, where the gospel has been part of our society since the founding of the colonies? Is Jesus viewed as precious, verse 7, by the population at large? I remember several years back that Britt Hume, the commentator, came under severe attack. Why? Because in his news commentary program, he advised Tiger Woods, who committed multiple violations of his marriage vows in adultery, to consider seriously abandoning his Buddhist religion for Christ and Christianity. Brit Hume. Why? Because in Buddhism there's no forgiveness for sin, no promise healing and recovery, but in Christianity there is. Wow, the venom poured out on Mr. Hume for his comments was unbelievably vile. You see, we can tolerate all kinds of 
curse words and obscene gestures and jokes and comments on the airwaves, but let's not hear any of this Jesus junk. Jesus is only precious to believers. And not because we were always enamored with him. He's precious because of what he has done for us. So Peter in his second letter writes, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 2 Peter 1, verse 1 and 4, 1, 1 through 4. Jesus is precious to believers. Yes, that's true. But the faith to believe is something he has given us. In fact, he has given us everything necessary to become one of those holy building blocks that God requires in his spiritual house. Verse 5. John put it this way. This is love. <laughs> Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. First John 4 verse 10. What is that? Well, it's not us pursuing God. <laughs> Rather, it's God pursuing us. We never loved God before. But we cannot help but love him now. Now contrast all of this to what Peter says about those who do not believe. What's that? Well, Christ becomes the very opposite of all that we believe and hold dear. Instead of being built on Christ, we stumble over him. Verse 8. People are offended by Jesus. They fall. They don't want you talking about him. They don't want to hear this Jesus stuff. Nothing precious about Jesus to the watching world. Now Isaiah helps us with some insight from the prophecy. In Isaiah 8, verse 8 of our text, Peter is quoting from Isaiah 8 in which God chided Israel for replacing him with what? Idols, spiritists, mediums, the occult practitioners, 
Kind of sounds like America, doesn't it? And as a result, the people were paralyzed with fear. So God told Isaiah, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. All that from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and following. Have you noticed the fear level in people who have no faith in Christ? I, I kind of make that a little thing that I watch on the news and listening to people talk. They fear the economy when it's not going well. They fear government. They fear terrorists might be in the plane that they're on. They fear the night. They fear the day. They fear to go to bed at night. They fear to get up in the day. They fear the wrong things. But they're all wrong things. Psalm 36 is titled, An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. And then he, then he speaks. The psalmist speaks. And here's what he says. About the wicked. There's no fear of God in their eyes. For in his own eyes, the wicked flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. Even on his bed, he plots evil. He commits himself to a sinful course and he does not reject what is wrong. Psalm 36, 1 through 4. Boy, that's a good description of the wicked. Plotting what wicked things can do tomorrow. Isaiah said, they stumble over God rather than submit to him. They seek the wisdom of the devil's ministers instead of consulting God's law and testimony. Verse 20 of our text. They stumble and that leads to a fall. And the fall breaks them. And in their broken state, they're snared and captured by the enemy, verse 13. In verse 21 and following, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and curse their God. And then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. That's the unbelieving. That's the wicked. Now contrast this to the confidence of the believer. 
He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Psalm 91. The first eight verses. What I'm saying is that unbelievers fear the wrong things. It's their unbelief which fuels their fears. Man's ingenuity and intellectual prowess only goes so far in assuring people that all will be well. Eventually unbelievers hit the panic button because... They sense that things are out of control. Solomon puts it this way. The wicked man flees though no one pursues. But the righteous are as bold as lions. Proverbs 28 verse 1. The wicked is scared of the shadows. Listen to that. He flees when there's no one pursuing him. Now, what's the consequences of doomsday thinking? Well, number one, people who reject the stone foundation set by God himself, they stumble. And that's what we've been talking about. Have you ever built a house from scratch or maybe at least you added uh, like an addition to your house. I think very likely you hired an architect to design the house or maybe you relied upon your own vision of what you wanted. Either way, you followed some, some sort of a blueprint or a pattern for what you wanted to have done. And you expected that any mason or carpenter that you hired would build the superstructure according to your desire. If you envisioned a rectangular structure, you would not think very kindly of a builder who decided to make it a square foundation, or worse yet, a round foundation. If you wanted a second-story addition, you would not be pleased if the builder added a wing on the ground floor. What I'm driving at is the truth that the person contracting for the house, you, has the exclusive right to design and build the house the way you want it. The builder is servant to the homeowner, the designer. None of this is different when we come to the subject of God building his spiritual house. Verse 5, which begins, as we noted last week, with a foundation. 
In God's house, he has laid a stone in Zion, we read, a chosen and precious cornerstone, verse 6, which comprises the foundation that verse 4 says is precious to God, to which God adds living stones, verse 5, as he sees fit. So think then of the audacity, the other affrontery to God, when we read in verse 7 that the unbeliever is like a builder who rejects the chosen foundation stone so he can do his own thing. Again, whose house is this? It's God's house. So God has exclusive right to design and build and complete his house. It's God. Who may make changes, if any, to the foundation? It's God. Who determines how people in this spiritual house are incorporated into the superstructure? It's God. So from start to finish, the house is God's, and he alone governs its design and construction. And since Peter is talking about a spiritual house, he's referring to a home in heaven... It says in 2 Peter 3, But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. 2 Peter 3, verse 13. In keeping with his promise? What's the promise? Well, for one, John 14 Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. John 14, the first three verses. Might I say that it is this same Jesus who says to us, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, verse 6. His house, his plans, his way. You don't get to argue with that. You can believe it or reject it, but you don't get to change it. God set his son as the foundation stone of his house. No one makes it to heaven who is built on some other foundation. Jesus put it this way. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him. We will come to him. We will make our home with him. John 14 verse 23. And that was Jesus' prayer in John 17. Father, I want those you have given me to be where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Okay, so what happens to people who do not love Christ? 
who in our text reject him, verse 4, want to replace him as the foundation by their rejection, verse 7, what's the consequence? Well, God does not comply with their desires. No, God remains rock hard in his determination to build his house on Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Thus, people trip over Jesus. They can't accept that. They can't accept Christ. They stumble over him. They fall. And in so doing, they do not hurt God. But they do hurt themselves. Brethren, to miss Christ is to miss heaven. The world needs to understand that. To reject the stone that God has laid is to ruin oneself eternally. Jesus put it this way, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Because you see, he's the rock. His teachings are the wise things that we're to obey. The rain came down, Jesus goes on. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew. Boy, that was last night, wasn't it? <laughs> the rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and yet it did not fall. Because it had its foundation on the rock. On the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and it beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. Matthew 7, verse 24 and following. Why did it fall with a great crash? No foundation stone. It's on sand. You've all seen that along the seashore, right? The waves come in, slap against the little sand castle you built with the kids, using the pails and the little shovels and so forth. And then the waves come in and, oh, what happened to the castle? There it goes with the tide. Every religion in the world that does not accept the exclusive claim of Christ to be heard, believed, obeyed is on a crash course with the floods of judgment and destruction. They're not, they're not going to make it. They think they will, but they will not. And I'm not being mean-spirited. I'm just giving you the exclusivity that Christ gives about himself. They may believe that we are all headed to the same destination, but we're just, we're just on different roads. How many times have we heard that one? Yet again, Jesus warned that all roads, all roads do not lead to heaven. Where do you find that? Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, says Jesus, for wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to, to heaven? No, no. 
Wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And then he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Matthew 7, verse 13 through 15. Don't believe every preacher. There are two roads and two destinations. One road is a boulevard. No reservations needed. Wide, spacious, easy to maneuver. Y'all come. And come just as you are. God loves everybody, so you're invited. And don't worry about what you believe or whose teaching you adhere to. Just come. It'll be okay. It's fine. Jesus said there are many on that road. In fact, every major religion of the world is on that road. The Buddhists, the Hindus, the Muslims, the Catholics, the cults, the Protestants. Some of them have... Very impressive credentials. Verse 22, Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, <laughs> did we not preach in your name? And in your name we drove out demons. We performed miracles, many miracles. You see, they know how to use the name of Jesus to identify with his reputation and his power but they're evildoers at heart, as Jesus says in verse 23. And he's able to read their heart. Why does Jesus define building on the rock as everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock? Matthew seven twenty four. Well, it agrees with the other analogy of the narrow road that leads to life. And why is it that at the conclusion of his teaching on the two roads, he adds, watch out for false teachers? Well, it's because of the broad road being promoted by myriads of teachers but only ministers of Christ who take seriously the exclusive exclusivity of Jesus as God, God's only way to eternal life. There's your contrast. The narrow road is entered through a small gate that leads to a footpath. It isn't located on a thoroughfare. There are no gaping four-lane entrances. There is no promise to the masses. It's almost out of sight. It's scarcely heard of or noticed by anyone. Few find it. Few are on it. No one is impressed by crowds. 
There are no crowds. Everything about the narrow road is diminutive. Think about it. God is building his house on a very small substrata. This slab rock occupies a small footprint among the philosophies and religions of the world. And I'm not talking about the name Christian or the encompassing concept Christianity. Certainly Christianity is named among the major religions of the world. It's right up there with Islam and Hinduism. But Christianity is like a hollow shell that once housed the nugget of a nutrition in the middle. Once upon a time. God's true people are found within the holes of Christianity, but they've been relegated to the dungeon (laughs) or the attic where they're kept out of sight and they're muffled and they're gagged and they're silenced and ridiculed and persecuted. The flashy and flamboyant have replaced them. But rest assured, impressive credentials do not impress God. And no matter how obscure and hard to find true believers are, Jesus taught us parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came in and sowed weeds among the wheat. And then he went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed ears... Then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, uh, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Well, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barns. Matthew 13, verse 24 and following. Association with God's people is no proof that you are one of them. You can be a weed growing in the field with the wheat. The rejection of Jesus leads to stumbling. Then secondly, those who stumble over Christ fall to their own ruin as a fixed outcome of their rejection of him. Look at verse 7 and 8. A rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now some have assumed here that Peter is talking about what is called double predestination. 
that God chooses his elect to become members of his spiritual house, and he also chooses those who would, will reject Christ and perish. But the original construction in the Greek here will not permit such an interpretation. The word which, in the expression, which also they were destined for, refers back to stumbling, not to disobey. To disobey God's message concerning Christ inevitably leads to stumbling and falling. The consequence of rejecting Christ has this fixed result. But God does not make men unbelievers, though he does make them believers. It's a tremendous difference. He grants men faith to believe, but he does not instill unbelief in people to reject Christ. This unbelief is of their own doing. So I say it this way, sin is not appointed by God, but the punishment for sin is. God has connected this stumbling and falling with unbelief as the natural consequence of rejecting the stone that God has laid as the foundation to eternal life. The original prophecy in Isaiah is helpful here. God says, in effect, that the problem with Israel, his people, was that they would not have him to be their God. Instead, they sought spirituality in things like wizards, witches, mediums, occultists, and the like. They should have given credence to the law and the testimony of God, but they did not. Instead, they rejected God, and they went with the pagan religions of the world. Instead of being a light and a lamp with the truth of the gospel as they came into the promised land, they came in and adopted the idolatry and paganism of the people that were already there. And as a consequence, then Isaiah goes on to say in verse 22, they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into outer darkness. So the sequence goes something like this. They reject God. That's number one. Secondly, they stumble over his precepts and go to other so-called sources of spiritual enlightenment. Number three, finally... Distress and darkness and fearful gloom overtake them as God casts them into utter darkness as the final consequence for the rejection of him. That's what we have in our text. And that's what we see in our society. All sin has a fixed consequence and it isn't pretty. Your unbelief is not neutral. It is not passive. Jesus taught this about himself. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That was God's intent, you see, followed by his promise. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because 
He has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's a consequence of unbelief. He goes on. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light. Will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. John 3, 17 and following. So what's it going to be for you? Believe and be saved or disbelieve and stand condemned already. Will you cast your spiritual hope on the solid rock of God's house, who is Jesus Christ, coming to him God's way on God's terms of repentance and faith? Or do you reject Christ and stumble and fall and self-destruct? Are you on that broad road where everyone else is traveling, laughing their way, pleasure riding their way to hell? Or have you entered that narrow gate that leads to the footpath of eternal life that few find? They were having an anniversary celebration of um, Laugh-In program of the 60s, which I enjoyed back in the 60s. But the other night when I tuned into the reprogram, they were slamming our president using the F word on TV, all other kinds of obscenities and immoral statements and actions, so I had to shut it off. And I thought, wow, what a difference between the old laugh-in and the new revitalized laugh-in, and it shows us from the 60s to now how the country has gone because the people are sitting there laughing at all these things. No place for righteousness. Don't stumble over Christ. Your fall will have dire consequences. Doomsday awaits all those who reject the stone that God's house is built upon. Remember, the house is God's. He's building it his way. After Jesus had told the parable of the tenant farmers who refused to pay the landowner his due, but instead killed the servants and later killed the son, he explained that the landowner would come and execute those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And the people were upset and they cried out, May this never be! But it will be. We read Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Luke 20, verse 17 and 18. Well, you don't want this to happen. then what are you doing about the foundation stone? It was Christ. May it never be of anyone here that Jesus Christ, the foundation stone of God's house, would become the stone that crushes you to oblivion and judgment 
for your unbelief. Jesus promises, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. And I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has come now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. John 5, 24, 25. Are you hearing the voice that's calling you to repentance and faith? Our Father, we thank you for your word and pray your blessing upon it. Jesus is making his case for his exclusivity, not only as the foundation stone, but as the very one who implants the living stones on that foundation. Those who name the name of Jesus and confess him as Lord and Savior. No one does that in and of themselves. But you grant them the faith and you grant us the repentance. We love our sins so much, we don't want to repent. But unless we do, unless we come to Christ and see his beauty and his exclusivity as Savior, we shall perish in our sin. The darkness will overtake us. The light will not have a penetrating effect. Because our deeds are evil. But Lord, I pray that you will search our hearts this day. Save whom you will today. For your own glory and our good. Because if if you don't work in this way, there will be no salvation. Bless the truth in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal. Now we're going to sing this and then we'll take a 10 minute break and regather here for the Lord's table. One seventy in the brown hymnal. <clears throat> Let's stand together as we sing.
we'll take a 10-minute break and regather when you hear the music, and we'll gather around the Lord's table. And then there's no evening service tonight, so keep that in mind. We're dismissed for 10 minutes.